Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. As we began our study of Galatians, we noted how Paul urgently wrote to the churches he'd planted in the province of Galatia on his first missionary journey. And he was concerned because of false teachers who'd come amongst them sowing doubt about his teaching concerning the gospel. Now, some of the Jewish-born Christians had begun to teach the people that they needed to become Jews first before becoming Christ followers, and that faith in Christ was really not enough to save us. They insisted that the law of Moses also had to be strictly observed in order to please God and said that Paul's teaching about the grace or the unmerited favor of God was in fact not to be trusted. Because they questioned his authority to speak about Christ, Paul began by saying that it was God who had sent him out to preach and that what he preached was, and I quote, not of human origin, for he had received the message directly from the Lord himself. Paul confessed to his past actions of persecuting the church and confirmed that even so, God by his grace had called him as a minister of Christ. His authority had not come from men, but rather from God. And he'd been willing to take the message of Christ even to the most difficult places. And he traveled not only back to his hometown, visiting Damascus along the way, but also going as far as Jerusalem, where the Jewish religious leaders, of course, would have been only too happy to arrest him. But Paul wanted to please the Lord more than he wanted a quiet life. He was happy to suffer if it meant that he had to in order to fulfill the call of God on his life. So in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul talks about a second visit he made to Jerusalem to discuss with the church leaders there his work among the Gentiles and how it was affecting the spread of the gospel. So Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So he says that in due time and in response to the Lord's prompting, he made a second journey to Jerusalem to meet privately with respected church leaders. His good friend Barnabas had come along with him as a witness to all that God had done and was doing through Paul's ministry. 
He also brought Titus, a Gentile who had converted to Christianity as a result of Paul's preaching and who actually would play an important role in the proceedings in the end. Paul explained to the church leaders in Jerusalem exactly how he presented the gospel to the Gentiles because he really wanted to be sure that what he was preaching was indeed in line with what they believed. But Paul also knew how important unity was. And although his determination was always to please God alone, he didn't ever want to be seen as being divisive. He wanted to dispel any notion that there were two different Gospels being presented. And that brings us to verse 4. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. This matter to which Paul refers was the issue of circumcision. Many of the early Christians were from a Jewish background, and additionally, many of those had been priests who served at the temple before coming to faith in Christ. Some had been so focused on the law of Moses in the past that they found it almost impossible to let go of the legalism that once bound them. They were sure that the only way to have God's favor was to become a Jew. And so these Judaizers, as they were called, insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised before they could belong to Christ. The way that this is written here actually suggests that there was some pressure on Paul to comply with their demands, probably for the sake of peace. However, you see, he says that he did not give in to these legalists, even for a moment. According to verse 4, Paul even believed that these Judaizers were false believers who had infiltrated their ranks in order to make them slaves again to the law of Moses and all of the old ways of worship. Paul knew that it was vital that he stand his ground against the message of the Judaizers, for it is only by faith in Christ that a person is saved. The church leaders in Jerusalem, they did not find fault with Paul's message. And even more than that, they didn't require that the Gentile convert Titus, who was with Paul, be circumcised. In fact, Paul says that they fully affirmed what he was doing and added nothing to his message. He says in verse 6, As for those who were held in high esteem, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, I just want us to stop a moment to consider Paul's statement that God does not show favoritism, because I think that some of us may feel as if God does have favorites, but that just isn't true. He loves all of us equally, and he has a special plan for each of us as we develop our relationship with him. And in truth, one's work is not more important than another's. 
For example, the famous preacher Billy Graham successfully preached the salvation message to millions of people all across the world. God used that man to clearly communicate the love of Christ and in so doing more than 3.2 million people came to faith in Jesus through his preaching. But how did Billy Graham come to faith in Christ himself? In 1934, an evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham held a series of meetings in Charlotte, the town where Billy Graham lived. For the first week of meetings, Billy refused to attend because he thought that faith was only for weak men, women and children. But finally, one of Billy Graham's father's employees, a man by the name of Albert McCain, persuaded Billy to check out the meetings. He went along, and there he made a decision to follow Christ in response to Ham's powerful teaching. Now let me ask you, in the scheme of God's kingdom, who is more important? Billy Graham, who reached millions of people, or Albert McCain, who reached the one. I think they were important as one another in the end. You see, we can't compare ourselves with others. God has called each of us to fulfill his purposes, and everything is woven together somehow. God has no favorites. So let's return to Paul's text, and we'll pick it up again in verse 6, where he says, As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles." James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time. Cephas was, of course, Peter, and the other disciple, John, was with them. These three leaders, who were thought of as the very mainstays of the early church, not only recognized God's favor given to Paul, but they readily accepted him and his fellow worker Barnabas, which is what is meant when it says that they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You see, giving the right hand to another was not only the sign of friendship, it was also the mark of confidence and partnership. They not only recognized that Paul had been called to minister to the Gentiles as Peter had been called to the Jews, but they also approved of the message that Paul preached. And against the wishes of the Judaizers, the church leaders did not even insist on Titus being circumcised. 
By publicly affirming Paul and by not supporting the Judaizers' position on Titus' circumcision, the leaders were taking a position on the argument in such a way so as not to cause more division in the young church as it moved forward. They agreed that Paul should focus on taking the gospel to the Gentiles and Peter on taking it to the Jews. They only asked that Paul, and do you see it in the text, continue to remember the poor, which was actually something that was important to everyone. Because you see, at that time, a famine had come across the Roman Empire and Judea was in fact one of the places worst hit. The New Testament does make mention of Paul arranging several collections to be made and taken to their aid on several occasions. This whole episode, though, was a significant moment in the life of the early church. It staked out a position of unity concerning the gospel of grace and also of diversity in the gifts and calling of God that Paul developed more fully later in his letters to the various churches. That wasn't the end of the story. If you're like me, you might be thinking what a blessing it would have been if the Judaizers had just accepted the Christian leadership's position about Titus and if all the disagreement had stopped there. But unfortunately, it continued because they still saw themselves as being superior to their Gentile brothers and sisters. To be fair, though, we have to remember how difficult it must have been for some of the Jewish people to leave their old rules and practices behind. Growing up as Jews, they would have believed themselves superior to other people. After all, they were the chosen people, and God had used them to bring a knowledge of him to the world. Though they had always believed that outsiders could become part of God's people by becoming Jewish and by accepting the law of Moses, it was very hard for them to accept the grace that the gospel offers and that the old religious laws about approaching God were no longer of any value. And more importantly, that faith in Christ's sacrifice was enough to make a person part of God's family. They didn't accept the council's decision and they didn't just go away. In fact, they followed Paul throughout his ministry and they weren't finished raising issues about Gentile believers either. According to the law of Moses, Jews were not allowed to fellowship with Gentiles. They couldn't enter their homes and they certainly couldn't eat with them as eating with someone implied acceptance of them. And that's where the next problem arose. You see, in the early days of the church, the believers would meet together once a week for a fellowship meal, which they shared what they had with one another. Rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, they all came together without distinctions to share in what they called love feasts. Well, when Peter went to visit Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, which was some distance north of Jerusalem, he had no problem in joining in their weekly feast until several Judaizers arrived saying that they'd been sent by James, which, by the way, may not have actually been true. 
Look at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Obviously, the group who had said that they had come from James were Judaizers, because Paul refers to them here as belonging to the circumcision group. Apparently, they were very intimidating too, because Peter was actually afraid of them. They insisted that Jewish Christ followers should not eat with their Gentile brothers and sisters, for to do so would break the law of Moses. And the pressure that they exerted was so great, eventually Peter gave in to them. Unfortunately, other Christians in Antioch who had come from a Jewish background joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, it may seem harsh for Paul to say that Peter was being hypocritical in his actions, but he knew that people-pleasing was not going to get the true message of Christ out. Now, before we go on, let me just say something which I hope will be helpful in understanding the arguments of these Judaizers. There had always been two parts to God's law. There was the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. In fact, Christ summed up those Ten Commandments into what he called the two greatest commandments. We read about this in Matthew 22, verse 37 onwards, where Christ says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as believers, we still observe the moral law. But there was also the ritualistic law that included laws about sacrifices, about food and other observances that would set Jews apart from other people until the Messiah came. Jesus fulfilled all of those ritualistic laws and released us from its those obligations. It was this ritualistic law that the Judaizers felt Peter was breaking, not the moral law. They believed that all the ritual laws were still in force and were still necessary to follow if you truly wanted to please God. And that's why Paul was angry that Peter had given in to them. Peter was acting as if Christ's death had not wiped out that part of the law, as if the gospel had not set us free from those kind of obligations. In all likelihood, Peter didn't consider the implications his actions might have and how they would be used to promote the false teacher's message and further divide believers. But he really did need to consider his actions. And so Paul openly confronted him in verses 14 through 21. 
When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified." These were strong words. Peter and other believers from Jewish backgrounds were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In fact, their divisive actions were directly opposed to it. Paul would later explain more fully in his letter to the Ephesians that the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, had done away with all of the divisions between Jews and Gentiles, not just the ritualistic laws. He wrote in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. The old ritualistic laws and decrees had separated Jews and Gentiles from one another, but those had been abolished by Christ's death, and there was, there was to be no different classes within the church. Perhaps Paul, though, was also frustrated because of all the disciples, Peter should have known this. Because in Acts chapter 10, God had used Peter to share the gospel with a Roman by the name of Cornelius, who was also desperate for God. Cornelius became the first Gentile convert, and the Holy Spirit so evidently filled Cornelius and his whole household while Peter was preaching that all the Jewish believers present were convinced that God had indeed opened the door to the Gentiles to become part of God's family. Peter had started off so well there and then in Antioch by living out this truth and not separating himself from Gentile believers. But for some reason, the arrival of the Judaizers from Jerusalem had gotten him off track. His actions made it seem that the Judaizers were right, that Gentiles had to follow Jewish traditions in order to be accepted. Paul wasn't totally without sympathy, however. He knew what it had been like to be legalistic. So he reminded Peter of their common background, of how they both once believed that being Jewish made them superior to Gentiles, but of how they both had failed, how they'd both fallen short of the glory of God, and how they had both needed Christ's mercy and grace, just as the Gentiles had. We need to remember those same things today, that being religious and following the rules is just not enough. Why? Because no matter how hard we try, we all sin 
and fall short of the glory of God. But God sent his son to pay the penalty that we deserve. He took all of our sin upon himself at the cross so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then Paul adds a question to his argument in verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. If associating with Gentiles really was a sin, Christ would never have joined the Jews and the Gentiles together as his followers, for Jesus would never promote sin. The only conclusion then is that Christ's death and resurrection freed us from the old religious laws that had once separated us. All people are now made right with God by grace alone, and it would be foolish to try to rebuild that which Christ had destroyed. He explained that nothing surpasses faith. Look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. When we come to faith in Christ, in a spiritual sense, we die to everything that once governed us, and we are born again to live a new life filled with the Holy Spirit who now lives within us. Now, instead of being focused on what we have to do to please God and to earn his favor, we now live by faith in Christ alone. And whatever we do is done out of gratitude to him who loved us and gave himself up for us. The reality is, if there had ever been any way to earn salvation by good works and by our obedience to the law, Christ would not have had to die. His death would have had no meaning or purpose, but Christ has done what we could not do for ourselves. He has reconciled us to our Heavenly Father, and he has joined us all together as part of his body, the church. As Christians, we face two great temptations. The first is to think that we can earn God's approval. And the second is to compare ourselves to others and to think that our achievements somehow make us better than them. But Christianity that has that much self in it really is not Christianity at all. Paul had known what it was to be self-righteous. He knew what he had been before he came to Christ. He tried to obey every letter of the law, and in the end, it led him further from God rather than closer. Though he may have looked successful on the outside, though he may have appeared to be holy, he knew what he was on the inside, for the law helped him to understand how much of a sinner he really was. But when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had thrown himself at Christ's feet 
and cried out for God's mercy. And that day, something changed for Paul. He was a new man now, and he could never resurrect that kind of legalism in his new life. Paul knew that Christ gave his life on the cross so that each one of us could be reconciled to God, brought into his family, and given a new life we didn't know before. And it's all based on God's unmerited favor, upon his grace and his love. And this new life that God offers is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that you show us how desperately we need Christ. We know what we are on the inside, even as Paul did. And I thank you, Lord God, that you offer us mercy. You offer us your favor that is undeserved, all because of Jesus Christ, all because of his death on the cross when he took the punishment that we deserve. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm in our belief and our faith in Christ, and that you would help us to share this truth lovingly with others for the extension of Christ's kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.